Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the House Democrats announced that they'll be starting an impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump and the phone call he had with the president of Ukraine. Justin Trudeau has given his first interview since the blackface scandal broke. Did he wait too long? Also, Indwell and three private developers are planning to rebuild the Jamesville Social Housing Complex in the north end of Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, the news, uh, high drama in Washington yesterday when uh, the U.S. House of Representatives uh, announced that they are launching an impeachment inquiry of Donald Trump over allegations that he tried to press a foreign government into helping him take down a political rival. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made the announcement. The actions of the Trump presidency revealed the dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. Impeachment inquiry. So exactly what does that mean? What are the next steps and, and what are the implications? Uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program Claire Finkelstein, Algernon Biddle Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let me ask you right up front then, because there's an awful lot of speculation about what might be happening here. When they say an impeachment inquiry, what does that actually entail? Well, right now it's a bit more symbolic um, than consequential because we've already been in a kind of impeachment inquiry, and that was something that Chairman Nadler said already um, a number of, of weeks ago uh, that he considered us in an impeachment inquiry. The important part of it is um, that Democrats in the House are now organizing around the concept of impeachment in a fairly unified way. Previously, Nancy Pelosi, of course, was uh, opposed to taking this step, and now she is throwing her weight behind it. So the Democrats are really moving forward with uh, an inquiry into the possibility of impeaching the president in a way that is solidifying their efforts. Um, Structurally, what it means is that there are going to be six committees that are reporting to the Judiciary Committee um, and uh, Chairman Nadler. Uh, and they, the chair of each of those committees um, will have to report to the Judiciary Committee that is the committee that then makes the decision about whether or not to proceed with impeachment and whether or not to recommend it to the full House. And I'm glad you explained that because I... I was watching the coverage yesterday, and I thought, well, they're already doing that, aren't they? And as a matter of fact, the discussion and the debate over the last couple of weeks was, uh, yeah, it's an inquiry. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Yes, depending on who you asked, as you say, until Chairman Nadler finally said, yeah, this is the beginning phrases of this. So they're going to report back. They're going to get a body of information. What swung the, the, uh, the, the Democrats who seem to be sitting on the fence on this? What swung them over to say, this is the way we need to go? Uh, it seemed to me, Claire, as if uh, the Mueller investigation— and the involvement with the Russians uh, seemed to have been petering out pretty much. But then all of a sudden the story about uh, the president's call with Ukraine and, and what may have gone on there seemed to have just ignited a fire under an awful lot of people. That's right. Well, these are very, very significant events. Uh, and I think it's, it's right that these are the events that have swung many Democrats' minds on this, including Nancy Pelosi. Um, think about what the president has admitted to doing. This is not... You know, these are not guesses that require further investigation. On the face of it, 
the president has admitting to approaching a foreign leader for purposes of gaining an advantage over a political rival and ask that political leader to turn up dirt on that rival. Now, um, that's a pretty extraordinary thing, given that we've been here before and given that his campaign was under investigation for doing this very same thing. So that with regard to the 2016 election and the famous meeting in Trump Tower, uh, Don Jr. Uh, was willing to meet with the Russians because he had hoped to get dirt on Hillary Clinton and came away he said, disappointed because we didn't get anything. And that was Exhibit A in a campaign finance violation because you're not allowed to receive campaign benefits from a foreign country. And here we have the sitting president of the United States admitting that he approached a foreign leader to gain that very same kind of illegal advantage. Um, that's a, an extraordinary admission. Well, and it reminded me, obviously, of that famous moment during the debates uh, in their last election, too. Uh, Russia, if you're listening, uh, find those emails. And what was it, like 24 hours later, all of a sudden they showed up? That's right, exactly. So the the thing that one would expect him to be doing is trying to show that the 2020 elections are not taking the same path as the 2016 elections, to lay to rest any concerns to prove that this, on the part of Democrats, really has been the witch hunt that he claims it is. But instead of doing that, though he's still claiming it's a witch hunt, um, he is actually displaying the very conduct that he's been under investigation for and displaying it brazenly and openly. That, And second of all, the thing that he um, is further accused of doing, which in effect he denies, though it's a little bit weak, um, is holding up congressionally voted monies for Ukraine uh, as military aid that Congress voted on to help protect them against Russia and help solidify their effort to remain independent. Uh, and it appears that at least the timing is very, very suspicious that uh, the president decided not to send that military aid to Ukraine. And then just a couple days later, had this conversation with President Zelensky, where he said um, that he wanted him to dig up dirt on uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. So it looks as though on top of everything else, he has used his official position and abused his office um, to make sure that he had the leverage to gain that information. And if Congress doesn't take action at this point, they have allowed themselves to be maneuvered into irrelevance, since that aid that they voted was a decision of Congress and has to be implemented by the president. Well, let's talk about protocol and, and the way things are supposed to be. And when this all ties in, of course, with that phone call uh, that you've referenced, the other thing, of course, is the actions of this whistleblower. Uh, and the report about right. that that whole incident, which apparently is being held up now by the Justice Department, uh, that's not supposed to happen. I mean, they're not supposed. Apparently, as, as we're to understand it, that report is supposed to go to Congress, not to the Justice Department. Yet, all of a sudden, there's a roadblock there. That's right. That's exactly right. So, so on top of potential campaign finance violations and solicitation to engage in campaign finance violations, number one, number two, extortion of a foreign leader and refusal to carry out the will of Congress, we now have potential obstruction of justice 
as a way of trying to hide that these things occurred. Um, and what that consists in is a valid whistleblower complaint that has been made. I say valid because the inspector general is the one who gets to decide if the uh, complaint has validity, uh, was supposed to go to Congress. It's the path that it's supposed to take according to law is that the inspector general decides whether or not it's a valid complaint. And if it is, uh, it goes to ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and he has no choice but to send it on to Congress. Instead, the president reached into the attorney general's office, as we understand it, and had the Office of Legal Counsel come up with the advice that it is not a valid whistleblower complaint, and then had the um, ODNI advise that they should not pass it on to Congress. So that's a, a bunch of twists and turns, but the bottom line is he reached into an ongoing legal process and uh, compromised the independence of that process and dealt Congress out of its proper role. Now, that would be a very, very clear case of obstruction of justice if these facts are true, even much clearer than the firing of Jim Comey, which is being held up as a, a kind of um, textbook example of obstruction of justice. But that's very similar to, to, to William Barr appearing you know, before the nation and, and saying no collusion. That's what the Mueller report says before anybody else had a chance to see anything of that report. Uh, basically, I guess, trying to get, get into people's heads and say, this is the conclusion you're going to come to. Uh, it was totally wrong, of course, and now we're starting to get the same thing. i, I got to ask on, on process here, Claire. Uh, do we know, does anybody know who that whistleblower is at this point? Uh, we don't know. We know it's someone from the intelligence community. Um, my guess is that it's someone fairly high level or someone recently departed fairly high level, um, but we don't know. Um, uh, we do know that the former head of ODNI, Dan Coates, stepped down from office right around the same time that all these things were going on, the conversation with um, Zelensky of Ukraine um, and withholding the military aid to Ukraine. Um, uh, and we also know that he told his deputy that she needed to step down um, because they could not, in effect, ethically carry out their jobs. Um, so we don't know if there was any... Um, uh, if the whistleblower came from that sector. But we um, assume that it was someone who was either listening into the conversation with Zelensky or who had the um, uh, ability to know what went on in that conversation. The reason I'm asking is because I guess there's a story coming out of the White House today that's suggesting that the whistleblower has a political bias. Uh, they don't even know who the whistleblower is, so I don't know how they can make an assertion like that. Well, that's right. Um, and, uh, of course, that's the sort of um, uh, negative press that the White House will try to um, put on this story. Um, but in theory, they don't know who it is. If the White House does know who the whistleblower is, um, then there has been real dereliction of duty on the part of someone uh, who should not be showing the subject of the complaint, the content of the complaint, when it's a whistleblower action, because that whistleblower is supposed to be absolutely protected. Now, on, again, the president's going to try to circumvent this whole thing by saying he's going to release an unredacted uh, transcript of this phone call. 
and uh, and also talk about and release the whistleblower report. That's the stuff we're hearing this morning, anyway. Uh, but the the comment from Nancy Pelosi yesterday, Claire, was that that's inconsequential. Go ahead and release that if you want. But there's a body of evidence here that they're working on, not just this particular phone call. That's only one piece of it. Right. And as far as we know, there were probably multiple phone calls. So it may be that the president uh, the, or the White House will release a transcript of one conversation. Uh, first of all, there won't be any faith that that transcript is accurate. And we've been down this road before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that will uh, really address this is if the White House releases or allows to be released the complaint itself. Now, again, that shouldn't be the White House that has to release it. I mean, the problem here really lies with the willingness of William Barr and uh, his Office of Legal Counsel to do the president's bidding and to play into his his playbook. Uh, the attorney general should have been completely unwilling to touch this, should have said under the whistleblower statute, the attorney general has no role in this, um, and it has to go to Congress. Notice that the fact that there may be classified information in that complaint is irrelevant because, for example, members of the House Intel Committee that subpoenaed this um, complaint all have clearances. And so it doesn't have to be released to the public in order for it to be released to Congress. I guess the ultimate question that everybody's going to be asking at some point here, Claire, is uh, even if they decide to go through with this this whole process after the inquiry is completed and they say, okay, we're going to begin impeachment, uh, even if it passes the House, uh, obviously for a conviction it also has to pass the Senate by two-thirds majority. That's never going to happen with this Republican majority. So as as some people are, are asking rhetorically, I guess now, why even bother go through this when you know it's not going to go through the Senate? I think there are two things uh to be aware of in that. At some point, if the House does not act um, and oppose what is going on, um, what is coming out of the White House, um, it is really condoning the behavior. It's saying that this is not an impeachable offense. So if, if any one of these aspects that we talked about, obstruction of justice, potential extortion um, and campaign finance violations, any one of those alone surely constitutes a high crime and misdemeanor. And it's important that the House mark that and note that as best they can, even if it fails. I don't think there is any political calculation um, that is worth paying attention to that says, you know, if they hold their fire and they don't impeach, they have a better shot at the 2020 election because they're just gutting the the um, degree to which the party can be understood as standing up for the rule of law. So that's really important. There's also signs that things may be changing in the Senate. Um, the fact that the Senate was willing to say, hey, we agree, we want to see that whistleblower report suggests that, you know, Something the tide may be turning, and remember the tide can turn very quickly, as it did with Watergate. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are historic times, and Claire, I'm glad, I'm so glad actually that you, you had some time to try to cut through some of the, uh, the the smoke here and cut right to the to the heart of the matter. As always, thank you so much for this today. 
Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Claire Fickelstein, of course, from Pennsylvania Law School, University of Pennsylvania Law School. More to come on this one, as you might expect. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. October 21st, federal election, of course, and uh, we have endeavored on this program to, uh, to bring the leaders to you and uh, ask them some of the uh, relevant questions. Uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, of course, was on the program last week. The week before that, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was uh, with us. Uh, still trying to nail down a, a date with the uh, the Prime Minister and uh, with Elizabeth May, but they, they will be forthcoming. However, uh, Global News, uh, the host actually of uh, Global National, uh, Donna Friesen, did have an opportunity to sit down with uh, Justin Trudeau, as she will with all the uh, the party leaders, a, a global tradition, obviously, as uh, we head towards the election. And uh, it was a pretty frank discussion. And uh, you might have expected, of course, the idea and the concept of the blackface scandal, as some people are calling it, that came up during the questioning. Spending time in mosques and gudwaras and with the Haitian community and all the diverse communities in my riding and fighting for them led me to understand to a much greater degree the kind of discrimination and uh, intolerance that people face on a daily basis because of the color of their skin. And that's uh, why I understand now, which I should have understood then, that it is always unacceptable. Uh, and many other things. Uh, it's on the webpage, by the way. Uh, you can just check it up or Google it, uh, the Donna Friesen interview with uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, it's uh, always a risk, though, when political leaders uh, sit down with somebody like this and kind of lay their, their soul bare in situations like this. It can either help or hurt a campaign. Joining us to talk about the implications, uh, Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. Uh, Henry, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Always good to be with you, Bill. These are these are interesting times when you when you have. Uh, I know Peter Mansbridge did this one. He was with CBC. Donna Friesen doing it with Global now. It's a kind of one on one, twenty five, thirty minute interview, uh, and it's it's got to be difficult for the leaders to do this because oftentimes, as we've talked about, Henry, uh, when you're on a campaign trail like this, it's talking points, talking points, talking points, uh, mm-hmm. and but you don't get to do much of that in an interview like this. And it, it, it can, it, as I just mentioned, it can either damage you or it could be a big boost for you. Yeah, that's for sure. Although we have to, I mean, I would point out is that some leaders do this a lot better than other people. Uh, I mean, they just naturally are more easygoing or uh, more comfortable with having questions shot at them compared to some other leaders. And also what's very important is also experience. Uh, Justin Trudeau, for example, I would say scores fairly well on the two things I mentioned. First of all, Compared to most leaders, he seems to be comfortable when questions are shot at him by uh, by people. Uh, he's he's gone to a lot of town halls. I know over the course of his years, he's come to McMaster and had the students shoot questions at him. Uh, he just he loves that. He he seems to enjoy that. Not all leaders do, and uh, also so there there's a natural inclination there uh, to be on to perform, I guess, which also touches on some of the photos as well. He's a, he's a natural performer, and also he has the experience. He's been through one um, campaign already, one uh, um, national campaign already as the leader of the Liberal Party, and that turned out very well. So he's got a lot of confidence. He's got the experience and the natural affinity to do this. So he, he does this pretty well. Other leaders, I mean, if this has happened to Sheer, I think it would be a lot more difficult. Well, it's, and it's going to at some like point. This. Yeah, I say it's going to at some point. I mean, Donna Frieza mentioned she's going to be interviewing both Mr. Shear, Mr. Singh, and and Elizabeth May in the coming days and weeks before this. But but on that point, though, Henry, 
How important is experience? Uh, as, as you mentioned, both Andrew Shear and Jagmeet Singh, uh, this is their first go-around as party leaders. I mean, obviously, they right. both have extensive political experience, but that's really at the riding level and then getting elected and going to Ottawa, or in, in Mr. Singh's case, obviously, to the Queen's Park, first of all, and then eventually with his by-election. But uh, but is, is there a, do you get a, a leg up on everyone else if you've, if you've been there, done that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I always tell my classes, there's no child prodigies in politics. That is something you learn by doing it and being in the fire of po- the political fire in the political kitchen, as if it were, uh, over, over the years. I mean, you can have a Mozart, a uh, child Mozart who does, uh, creates good music at, at age eight, but uh, you, you, won't, you won't find child prodigies in politics generally, especially at the leadership level. And uh, so he has that. I mean, and of course, as Cretchen would always say, this is a man who was schooled. Uh, every uh, at the at the dinner hour every night because he had dinner with the current prime minister mm-hmm. when he was a child so he had he has an, a, tr- a tremendous background and experience of what it means to be a leader and to be the prime minister i mean that is an incredible a, incredible experience that he has that allows him to you know feel these sort of things and and when this whole thing broke last week i mean i think uh, you know some people would have run away and hot hid some people would have tendered their resignation to their party uh you know they would have dunked uh, jumped under the nearest bush and although he was shaken he wasn't broken and you know he is tended tend to come back and even though uh, a lot of the early polls uh, we saw the first three days or so we could see that a lot he lost a lot of support but that a lot of that was temporary and it's now drifting back maybe he won't get it all back but a lot of it will drift back obviously it's a a, a situation that he i'm sure he he wished hadn't happened to him but it doesn't look as dire, you know, as uh, much of a problem as we we might have thought seven days, six days ago. Well, and that's one of the interesting things about watching some of the polling that's gone on. And if the same thing happened after the Lavalin uh, situation, uh, of right. course, too. They they were down eight or nine points, I think, in the polls back right. then. And uh, I guess the worst one I saw since uh, the, the blackface uh, was about five points down. But the, the Nanos reading today, I'm sure you've seen this already. They're they're essentially tied again at 35 each. That's right, and what I looked in last night, I think I, don't, I think that's the latest one. I saw the latest ones last night. Still had people saying they would prefer Trudeau over Scheer as prime minister, and that's even in, even at times when people were saying, "Oh, I, I, I'm um, I'm likely to vote conservative," but when you ask them who should be the best prime minister, uh, they will you know they will say Trudeau, and and oftentimes what that means is then people have to figure out, uh, do I vote where I think I want to vote, or do I vote for the for the person I want to be prime minister, and I mean that's uh, I get I uh, like most people, and I and I answer them. I don't hang up on pollsters when they call me. But the two most important things they want to know right off the top: who you're going to vote for, and who you think is the best prime minister, because they know there's a dynamic between that. They're not always identical, and if there is a tension, uh, you know, if people aren't saying you're the most popular, you're, uh, I'm most likely to vote um, liberal. But if they say, oh, but I think Trudeau will make the best prime minister, they know a number of those people are going to change their vote uh, when they get get the marked ballot paper. Henry, the interesting phenomenon about the numbers again, and I want to go back right. just a day or so after this 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 whole thing broke, right. and, and there was this big dip. Uh, they went right. down, but the conservatives didn't gain anything. There was no traction there at all. I don't know where those, where those people went for four or five days. I, well, I guess well, the NDP went up marginally and so did the Greens, so maybe some of them just decided to go over to that camp. But it wasn't an, an either-or. It wasn't like, okay, I'm ticked off at this guy now, so I'm going to go vote for Andrew Scheer. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't pick up anything there. So, I, I'm, uh, you know, now the question is, well, are they starting to stall? 
Uh, well, I think there's a longer-term trend here, and I think it was true four years ago. It's still true today. The largest group of voters uh, are, are people who are progressives. Now, the liberal vote uh, sort of under, understates that because there are two other progressive parties. There's the New Democratic Party and the Greens. So they're all fighting for the, the, largest, group, the largest group of voters. The, the second largest group of voters are people who tend to be conservatives, and they've been sticking with Scheer, uh, and, they, and they don't really move very much. One, one person I know uh, um, told me a number of years ago, the best way to think of this is that uh, Trudeau is on a big island and clo- uh, in the South Seas, and there's two other islands close to them, an NDP island, which is much smaller, and a Green Island, which is much smaller, and there are swimmers going back and forth. Now, farther out in the ocean is the conservative island. It's a very big island, not as big as Trudeau's, but the problem, there's no islands around it. So nobody swims back and forth to the conservative mm-hmm. island. They don't lose votes all that much. They don't gain any votes. But all the swimming and, and changing of votes is between the liberals, the greens, and the NDP. And that's, that's what we saw. So the, the, early, the survey, early surveys I showed right after, saw that right after this said most of the people who are angry at Trudeau momentarily shifted over over to the uh, NDP, and they got a boost, and to a certain extent, the green. And now a number of those people are shifting back. I don't think all of them will come back, but a lot of them are, have already come back. Uh, but the the problem that Trudeau does have is there, the, the both the Greens and the NDP have certain attractive quality that a lot of the progressives like, and uh, there's a lot of progressives who feel they've been disappointed by Trudeau. And this is you know something we would sometimes would expect when somebody wins a big victory, say like Trudeau did four years ago. Expectations are very high. You go to the second election with that leader, which we're in right now, and people say, "Oh, I'm a bit disappointed. I thought he was going to do this. I thought he was going to do that." Uh, it might be say, "Oh, he bought that pipeline. Uh, I don't like that. I'm going to vote for the Greens," or they'll they'll look at other things and they'll say, "Oh, I'll vote for the NDP." And that's that's what Trudeau. It's sort of like a sophomore jinx, a second time jinx, where people are saying, "Well, you weren't as, you don't look as good to me as you did four years ago," but there's still a big pool of voters, and I think about 20 percent of the progressive voters move around. So, and they have, as I said, the three choices: the Liberals are the moderate, are the sort of moderate. Uh, progressives, the NDP are sort of the mainline um, uh, progressives, and then you've got the Greens who are sort of these s- farther out, but these one, primarily one issue, they're known for one issue, the environment, which is an important issue. Now, some surveys I've seen have shown that the environment was a lot more important in the beginning of the campaign. It faded. Now, it may be because of all this stuff that's going on in the UN, it may be may pop up again. But I think it still runs the risk of fading. And although I think the Greens will do better than they did in the last election, I don't think they're going to be in double digits like a lot of the surveys have shown. I just think that issue is going to fade, and I think we're going to get back to uh, you know, some more traditional issues, whether it's uh, you know, uh, cost of living or uh, health care. It always comes down to that, doesn't it? Uh, those what they call pocketbook issues, you know. I'd... The pocketbook issues, yeah. And the thing let me point about what Shear does too. Shear, you oftentimes see this uh, among conservatives is they often are very good at figuring out what's bothering people, so they address the try to address the issue. Good for them; they're on the right track. But then they come up with a solution that doesn't quite work. So let's say the cost of living. This is really probably the biggest issue in the campaign. Shear, this is Shear's issue. Okay, he ought to be up at 40%. He ought 
He's not up at 40%. Why isn't he up at 40%? Because he's talking about ways of dealing with the cost of living issue that don't ring true to people. So, for example, they will talk about tax cuts. Most people, even when they get tax cuts, don't feel it because it's such, such a small amount of money. Uh, they don't even, some, a lot of people don't even realize they've received the tax cut. And I've seen surveys where you ask people after a tax cut, did you enjoy your tax cut? How much did you get? And they said, I had a tax cut. They didn't yeah. even know about it. You know, the same thing happened at Mike Harris, by the way, too. And it's, it's happened to in, in a different way to Trump in the States. Uh, but, but, yeah, so the, the, so the, and it, so the, the, you know, the conservatives don't quite realize tax cuts, once you've given them, people often either don't realize they've gotten it, no matter how much you tell them, or they're not grateful because it's so small, or, you know, they just, they don't, they don't really think they got one. The, the other thing is the, um, is the, uh, there's a number of people will say, well, you know, and this is true in Ontario, this is particularly an Ontario focus, where a lot of people would say, yeah, uh, we're hearing you talk, Sheer talk just like uh, a year ago, Premier Ford talked when he was in his campaign. And since the past year, what they've seen is a cut of all sorts of programs. And there are so many people who can point to specific programs that they benefited from that have been cut or they're about to be cut. And so we've seen Ford's uh, support go from about 41% in the, in the election down to, at times, down to 20%. He's lost half of it in a year, which is astounding. And that's because he had the right issue, but he had the wrong solution. And this year, I think, is in the same sort of situation. He's speaking to the right problem, which is great. He ought to be doing very well, but he doesn't have, this, he doesn't have the solution that people buy, are willing to buy. What about that transference though, that happens, Henry, in, in elections, uh, where you know a conservative is a, is a conservative, and there's a lot of people, as you mentioned, that are disgruntled with the, the Doug Ford government right now. Right. Uh, do they punish the federal conservatives for their for their anger? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you, I mean, we, we saw this. It was Dalton McGinney was it? Remember when he said, "Oh, no right. new taxes," and then he introduced the, uh, the the green energy tax, and and there was what a, a federal election just after that, and the Liberals got slaughtered in Ontario. Absolutely. And this happened to the NDP. I mean, uh, for example, after uh, Bob Ray brought in the Ray days, yeah. in 19, now this is older, now 1993, is that when you had the next federal election, the NDP got, you know, got its worst number ever. <laughs> yeah. The, oh, yeah, absolutely. Because if you're angry at a party for what it does at the provincial level, who, you ta- who do you take it out? The first person you take it out on is the federal liberal who shows up at your door uh, a few months later. And they're the ones that have to bear the brunt of your anger. So yeah, it's uh, yeah. So this, this this certainly certainly in in Ontario, Sheer ought to be doing very well in Ontario. As I said, the ma- major issue in Ontario is cost of living. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people say what's adding to my cost of living is the fact number one is that I'm losing services from the provincial government. I now have to pay for, and number two. Uh, people also realize, and this goes back to the Harris government, because he suffered from the same type of problem, when you, when you download things to the municipal government, what happens? The property tax goes up. And people may not like you know, sales taxes or income taxes, but my experience or my understanding is I think people, homeowners, hate the property tax even more. Is it my imagination, or are leaders spending a lot more time in this area than they have in past elections? You, you, the tradition used to be, Henry, uh, in in the, the greater Hamilton area, Hamilton Burlington, you might get one visit per election from from one of the federal leaders. Right. Uh, they're spending a lot more time here. Is, is does that indicate that they think these ridings are in play? 
Well, I think they think they they might be. Listen, Trudeau's been in the, as we know, has been into Hamilton twice already. Yeah, and he's desperately trying to hold on to the Bertina seat. I mean, Bertina's seat is too close to call the Hamilton East Stony Creek. There, I would urge everybody to vote because they're you know that's that's a close race. It really matters, right? That's that's the that's a very interesting race here. Um, the Shear came in, and I think he was up on Hamilton Mountain, which surprised me a bit. Um, but he must have internal polls that tell him that maybe the conservatives are going to do better up there than than people think. Uh, they haven't done well up there for a while, but maybe maybe he thinks he's got a real chance up there. But uh, so he's been in once. Trudeau's been in. Um, you know, I'm a bit surprised. I think uh, you know the Flamborough Glanbrook seat is probably a little closer than I than I would have expected. Uh, certainly, you know, the, the provincial outcome there was a bit surprising in terms of the second place and how cl- how close it was. I had always thought a riding like that, you know, the conservatives could go on vacation in Hawaii and they'd win it. But uh, no, that's, it's a, it is closer, but it's, you know, that, that seat is, um, you still expect that the incumbent uh, suite would, would win that. But it's, it's closer than, uh, than, than I would have thought. And, uh, and so Shear may be in again. And we'll have to watch. Does he go into, uh, you know, Glambrook, Flamborough, Glambrook? Well, and then there's downtown uh, Hamilton Center, downtown, of course, which which yeah. is a vacancy. Yeah, they have a vacancy. The thing is, the NDP in that writing has done a wise thing. I think, uh, in in general, you nominate uh, a well-known city councilor, somebody who's got a big profile, and he may be controversial in various ways, but he's got a big profile. He's been in the news a lot. He's probably interacted with a lot of people. And done, a, you know, on an individual one-to-one basis, has probably helped out a lot of people, and that so that just strengthens it. I, I, I think that's that that's uh, I don't I wouldn't expect any change there. Uh, uh, you know, uh, that that's probably one of the safest NDP seats in the in the country, I would think, e- even with a, a brand new person. But other writings where the NDP nominated people who are you know really not known by the population, uh, you know. That that's going to be very hard for them to make of a make much of a headway there. Well, uh, the tradition is if uh, the twenty first date is is looming right now, that a right. lot of folks aren't even going to start paying attention much until after the Thanksgiving Day weekend. Well, yeah, there are a lot, but there's also I think a lot of indicators in the polling. There's a, a lot of people although are are highly interested, uh, maybe even more highly interested than they were four years ago. And I think, I, again, I think that's a lot of people are thinking about Trudeau and uh, what he promised and how he's behaved uh, as, as the leader and what should I think about him. And so I do think, you know, that may mean, you know, I, I think maybe half the population, or you know, is, 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 is probably a lot more interested in a way than they were because they're trying to figure out how, what do I make of Trudeau? Do I send him a message and vote for somebody else or has he been good enough? Has he sat, you know, not been, you know, uh, optimal, but he's been sat- satisfies me nonetheless. So I think there's a lot of people thinking that, and I think that's the big issue. Where are those people going to come down at the end of the day? Are they going to decide, although I'm somewhat disappointed by Justin, I'll vote for him. And one thing I'll point out, and I've been talking to some other people who follow these things, and one thing I said to them, this reminds me, the 15, 2015 and the 2019 election we're having right now reminds me very much of the 1968 and the 1972 election oh, with yeah. the father. Like we, I, I'm old enough to remember Trudemania, but that was <laughs> Pierre Trudemania in 68. Yeah. I can remember the, I remember the campaign in 1972, 
and uh, I can remember how, how disappointed were people were. I brought in every candidate, for example, in the Hamilton West riding to speak to my... I was teaching a first-year class, 400 people at that point, and I brought in each of the candidates, and I remember I brought in the liberal candidate, and uh, he repeated at one point, and these are you know, 19-year-old students, at that point, they're a lot more differ- deferential maybe than they are today and polite. But uh, so, and he repeated the theme for the uh, 72 campaign, the land is strong. And the class, which I always assumed were basically liberals, I mean, normally the students normally are sort of moderate liberals that, that, that I get in political science in, at McMaster, and uh, they just hooted and hollered at him. I was taken aback. I said, I didn't realize my students really were turned off by that by that slogan. So you never know. Repeated, you never know. You, you don't know. I don't know whether they focus grouped that uh, they tested that <laughs> well, they, or not. If they didn't, they'll learn for next time. Henry, we've got to break it off. We're just about out yeah. of time. Listen, we'll stay in touch. We're going to talk a lot more between now and Election okay, Day. Okay, we'll have fun this election. You okay. betcha. Henry Jason, of course, from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you've heard on CHML News through the course of the morning, Indwell and three private developers are now planning to rebuild the Jamesville Social Housing Complex in the north end of the city. Uh, something that the city's been trying to get done for the last little while. Chad Collins is the, not only the counselor for Ward 5, he's also the president of City Housing Hamilton, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to fill us in on the details. Chad, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. You've talked many times now about uh, about affordable housing and about revitalizing uh, a lot of the projects here in the Hamilton area. Talk to us about how this one came to pass. Yeah, well, you know, over the last uh, five to ten years, we've seen incredible increase in property values um, across the city. And so, at City Housing, um, you know, we're we're we've always described ourselves as very land rich but resource uh, cash poor. And so, much like um, you know, residents have done in terms of cashing in on the equity on their own properties, and and much like many other communities have done uh, elsewhere, like Toronto and Regent Park project, we're taking advantage of the value of our property, and uh, and using it to create new units. And when I say new, I'm not talking additional units. I'm talking about replacing um, aging housing stock that's been on the site for, in this case, almost 50 years. And so it's not a new concept, but it's one that we've gravitated to because we do own a lot of properties, and many of these properties uh, sit now on very valuable parcels of land. And um, and we're, we're using that equity, as I said, to, um, to leverage uh, private investment, and so in this case, we have a, a private partner or partners as part of the development uh, consortium, as well as Indwell, who will provide uh, additional affordable housing um, on site. So it's, it really is a, a win-win-win for, for all parties. And um, it looks like, um, as you mentioned, we've been dealing with it now for probably, you know, five to ten years. And, mm-hmm. and we're finally at the point where we've been through the RFP process and, um, and we have a successful proponent uh, through the bid. How difficult, Chad, is it to try to attract that private sector investment and, and have them partner with you in projects like this? Well, I, I, you know, I think the carrot for us is that property is probably one of the most valuable in the city, right? It's a block away from the, the new GO station. Um, it is a, it's two blocks away from Bayfront Park. It's on the fringe of the downtown. It's a stone's throw from the waterfront in terms of all the good things that are happening on Piers uh, 7 and 8 and in the West Harbor. So from a development perspective, you know, we really didn't uh, we didn't have to push this on anyone. We had a lineup of people from both here in the community and elsewhere. I, I think the most difficult part of this process, Bill, has been um, trying to accommodate our tenants. Um, I mean, we started with 91 families living 
in this uh, on on the property, and it's taken us years to get to the point where we've made accommodation for those individuals and families uh, either on on other properties that we own with other housing providers, or in some cases, you know, people have have um, gone on to find their own uh, private market rental units or purchase their own homes. So a lot of time has passed, and I, I think the most challenging part of the logistics in terms of dealing with our residents, and um, I would say that's probably top of the list in, in terms of priorities for us as well when we started this process. And talk about the neighborhood itself, and I'm glad you brought that up, because obviously there's a, a metamorphosis going on in the, in the north end of the city right now, and you've talked about some of the successful projects down on the waterfront, and of course some of the big plans you've got uh, for, for mm-hmm. just a couple of blocks away from there. Uh, with all of that going on around this particular area, Chad, it was inevitable, I guess, that you had to focus on this, and, uh, and basically a makeover, I think, is, is really what you needed for this area. It is, and I, I know, you know, when, when you and I, you know, we talk about housing regularly, and, and, you know, you've had other guests on talking about housing and the, and the challenges and the needs in Hamilton. With all the gentrification that's going on, we see that wait list just gets longer and longer. And so for as much as we always focus on, you know, there's a backlog of people or individuals who, who want to, who need housing, um, I think oftentimes, you know, the, the stories don't reference the condition and the state of our, the units that we currently manage. So of the 7,000 uh, units that we have, you know, the vast majority of them are 40, 50, 60 years old. And so we're, we're not just focusing on trying to get people off the wait list. I think, you know, I can say that our board and certainly council by extension is very concerned about the living conditions. I mean, it's, you know, what is it, three, four times a year we find ourselves on the front page of the newspaper with an elevator that doesn't work, with a boiler that somehow we're, we, you know, we're, um, trying to find a, a part from from Europe that uh, helps us get the boilers back up and running when it's when it's cold outside, and or you know I think there was just a story the other week about people not having hot water. And so mm-hmm. I, again, I, I think these ty- types of developments, um, while they're not adding new units to the stock, they are replacing units that are very old, and um, and and it, it by extension these these developments then. Um, improve the quality of life for people who will reside there for decades to come. So I think that's important. We're leveraging our our assets in order to improve the living conditions, not just on this property, but elsewhere. So that's um, that, I think that's one of the key goals and objectives for us. And and again, oftentimes, you know, we, we seem to always focus on that wait list, and it certainly is something to talk about. But um, oftentimes, I think lost in the discussion are, are the, is the whole issue related to quality of life and, and the fact that many of our properties couldn't pass a property standards inspection. Is that evaluation going on constantly, Chad, uh, when you're looking at some of the properties? And, and you know, I, know, I know that you were one of the guys that spearheaded, you were the guy that spearheaded this idea along with the mayor uh, about setting money aside for re- renovation and, and, and redoing an awful lot of the existing yep. units. And, and, and I'm glad that's all gone. But at, at some point, I guess you have to make a determination. Is this one worth fixing up or is it worth just knocking yep. down and putting something else up? No, and that, those are the very tough decisions, right? And, and you know, Bill, the, you know, a lot of these properties have people living in them. Yeah. So when you make that determination that, you know, this building isn't repairable or it's too far gone and we need to start over, that's a difficult discussion to have, not just for the singles and semis where it might be a little bit easier to make accommodation, but when you're talking about massive buildings like 500 McNabb, which is currently empty, or you're talking about, you know, Jamesville property here with 91 townhomes, um, you know, to, to make that determination that we're starting over, is a, is a difficult one. It, it takes a long time, as I said, logistically, to deal with our tenants in terms of make the appropriate accommodation. 
And so to, to, to back to your question in terms of, you know, do, are we constantly looking at this? The answer is yes. We're required by provincial law to undertake building condition assessments every five years. And we've just completed that. And um, I think you'll probably see something soon from Matthew Van Dongen and The Spectator in terms of, um, you know, the, the results of those building condition assessments. And, and it isn't a good story. It, it, you know, with many of these units, and there are thousands of them, were downloaded to municipalities without any maintenance dollars attached to them. And so cities across the province assumed the inventory of houses and there was nothing in municipal budgets that made accommodation for renovations and repairs. And so we've really had to try to make the best of a bad situation in terms of band-aiding budgets together. And you referenced the poverty um, fund that we created and spearheaded certainly by the mayor. And and, um, and I think that's going a long way to, to, to chip away at the the issues that our, our tenants are facing and we're facing as landlords. So we have a long way to go, and I, and I think, Bill, that's why you see affordable housing for the last two or three federal elections, and not maybe not so much this time around, but certainly last election. It was top of the agenda, I think, almost across the country. And so we're hoping that with the, with the new government, whoever it might be, that they still see affordable housing as a priority and, and get at some of the issues that we see on the front page of Toronto Papers, Hamilton Papers, and, uh, you know, with media outlets across the country. Chad, maybe you could explain just how this partnership is going to work. My understanding is that uh, obviously you've got these par- these partners that are going to help build, and, and in mm-hmm. well, of course, we already know by reputation around this area too. Uh, but you at, at uh, City Housing Hamilton, you're going to still own the land, right? We're going to own a portion of the land, okay. and, and we will have uh, we'll have half of the units that we had before. So I think uh, the number is forty six that we'll continue to have on site, and then the rest of the site will be a mix of um, affordable units that we manage by um, Indwell, as well as market units that will be sold uh, by the developer. And so we're still yesterday's announcement was that we have a partner through this process. We haven't really announced the details yet because those contractual negotiations still need to take place. We certainly know what they've committed to as part of the bid process. Um, but in, in terms of, um, you know, how those things uh, f- um, are disclosed in the future, a lot will d- determine on the applications they make. They, they're required to go through rezoning. They're going to need access to the city's erase program. This is a former foundry site, so there's a level of contamination. Our units have asbestos in them, so getting, you know, the demolition process itself um, in terms of having to deal with contaminants, there, there's that issue there. So there's still a lot to, to occur, but it, it's essentially we'll have um, pr- uh, privately owned homes uh, adjacent to affordable units, adjacent to the rent geared to income units that we manage. And we're required by law, Bill. I started by saying that you know half of our units will still be on site. Um, it, it, the other units will, you know, our plan is to build just down the street. There's a, a parking lot at the corner of... Um, Bay and Cannon, I believe, and we'll be building on that site in terms of uh, replacing the other the other units. So there's still a lot to that has to happen over the next couple of months. But this is a milestone for us in terms of having someone that we can work with, partners with an S on it, and um, you know we can start to see that probably within the next uh, I'd say two years. And of course, there's always an appeal process for rezoning applications and those types of things. But all things, um, if if um, you know, all things being equal, if everything goes to plan, we're probably looking at within two years seeing some development activity on the site. Can you use this template, uh, this, this partnership that you forged here, as, as 
uh, as a building block and uh, to, for other areas? Because, I mean, there's lots of other neighborhoods that, that kind of need this, this same sort of assistance right now. Now that you've yeah, struck this sort of a yeah. deal, can you say, look, this is, this is the model we want? Absolutely, and I think you've had Councillor Marula on to talk about the McQuestion site. So yes, that's, yep. uh, that's essentially the same kind of a concept, right? We have a lot of land, a lot of low-density um, uh, units, and in that case, it's all towns. And uh, we had a partner who purchased the Roxborough Park School next to our property that said, look, you know, we're willing to replace all of these units, and then some. And um, and again, we're, we found ourselves in a, in a public-private partnership, and the... You know, the benefit that flows through to us is that we get new units. It, it improves the housing stock that we offer to our residents. And again, like the logistical part of trying to move residents around um, that area have been uh, certainly a top priority for us. And, and we're, we're early, still in the early days in that process. But to answer your question, yes, I, I think this is the new model. Um, you know, we're seeing increasing densities as part of the provincial plan as it relates to, you know, um, municipalities having to build up rather than out. And so we're taking advantage of these properties where we have low densities, we get more unit yield, there's certainly something for the developer to come in and, and provide new housing stock. And in the case of McQuestion and Roxborough, Councillor Marula has worked with, with that developer to apply addition or to sorry to build additional affordable housing units above and beyond city housing's presence still on the site so there's there's a net gain and, and i think for someone who's sitting at home saying jesus you know a lot of an investments being made here on 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 public publicly owned properties there's you know the there's the ancillary benefits are there's new tax dollars with these new private units that are being constructed from a social perspective, it's always good to have these mixed developments. I grew up in for a number of years in Oriole Crescent, and it was sort of seen as, um, you know, the project. And I think we're trying to get away from the stigma and stereotypes that come with our historical properties and to have mixed incomes with people in market units or, or even uh, affordable units mixed in with rankier to income units. We see that there are benefits in that in terms of um, different having different socioeconomic um, um, people around each other, and, and there's just all kinds of studies that show that that's the route that many housing providers want to take, and, and we're no exception to that rule. Well, it's pretty apparent to, I think, a lot of us that you guys at the, at the municipal level are doing all the heavy lifting here. You're the ones that are coming up with the innovative ideas, forging the partnerships. Uh, I guess all mm-hmm. that's needed now is to get the feds in the province to come in here and start cutting some checks and, and, sh- and doing what they've been promising to do for the last number of years. That seems to be the next step, or the final step, hopefully. It really is. I mean, we've, as, you know, as I've said before, we've been left to our own devices to date, and we've, we've made a fairly good go of it in light of the fact that we've seen reductions in, fundings of the, in funding from the provincial government. Uh, we've, we haven't received our announcement that Toronto received as it relates to, uh, you know, the national funds that are flowing through CMHC. So that's something, Bill, that we might see in the next three to four weeks. You know, there is an election going on, and usually that's when announcements and checks flow to either municipalities or organizations. So we're still hopeful that something's going to come our way. But I can say that over the long term, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable to, to expect local rate payers to pay for not just new units to get people off the wait list, but to pay for the renovation and repair of, you know, in our case, 14,000 units across the city with all providers. Um, it's just not, it, it, it's just not going to, math doesn't work in terms of expecting municipal ratepayers to pay for the renovation and repair and the upkeep. It just, there's just isn't the capacity there. So we're going to keep trying, we're going to find creative ways 
to, to regenerate our stock. We're going to try to find creative ways to work with the private sector to provide new units. But unless we have those partners at the table, we're never going to solve this problem completely. Well, we'll try to keep their feet to the fire and uh, get some commitments from them when they appear on this program. Chad, thanks as always. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Bill. Chad Collins, of course, the uh, president of uh, City Housing Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.